A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. Great to have you with us this Friday. And we are waiting on a major development in the U.S. government's classified document probe against former President Donald Trump. The U.S. Justice Department has until noon Eastern time today, that's three hours from now, to unseal parts of the affidavit used to justify its raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, the raid that removed a substantial number of highly sensitive documents from the residence. And we're going to be live in Washington with the latest. A waiting game underway on global markets, too. Fed Chair Jerome Powell is set to deliver his highly anticipated speech in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. That happens one hour from now. The speech could offer new insight into the U.S. Central Bank's policy, its path, as it battles high inflation. A new read on the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, the core rate of the PCE, that's the price index, uh, PCE price index, that has just been released. And it is a bit more encouraging, uh, core PCE rising by a weaker than expected year-over-year rate of 4.6% last month. That's down from June's levels. The latest U.S. personal spending numbers coming in weaker than expected, too. U.S. futures improving a bit after today's data, but we remain on track for a mostly lower open as we wait on the Fed chair's speech. A bit of nervousness in Europe as well. New numbers out of Germany today showing consumer sentiment at record lows as electricity prices there hit fresh record highs. I want to bring in Rahel Solomon. She joins us live now. Okay, so all eyes on Chairman Powell this morning. And it was exactly a year ago that he suggested inflation would be transitory. Um, He now appears to have been wrong about that. So something tells me he's going to have to watch his words more than he did last year. And, you know, today will be more about tone, right? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Allison, because Chairman Powell is always very careful about his uh, messaging, perhaps even more so this year because of how famous transitory became. And of course, we all know that transitory was now uh, not the case. So I think it's going to be a little bit of walking down memory lane, thinking about the year that was and also preparing us, at least from his point of view, from the Fed's point of view of the year ahead in terms of inflation. In fact, let's take a listen to his comments last year uh, when delivering at Jackson Hole. It was virtual. It was virtual last year. But let's take a listen to some of his comments. The spike in inflation is so far largely the product of a relatively narrow group of goods and services that have been directly affected by the pandemic and the reopening of the economy. And from long experience, we expect the inflation effects of these increases to be transitory. So let's talk, Allison, about what has happened since then, right? I mean, back then, Powell thought it was narrow. It has since broadened in terms of inflation. Uh, Powell, we didn't hear him say it there, but in reading his speech, he talked about uh, supply chains starting to improve. We know that uh, that's been a very slow process, so we still have supply chain issues. We expect him to continue to talk about that today. And he talked about the impact to energy prices and that uh, energy prices had accelerated as part of the recovery, but that he had hoped and had expected that those prices would moderate, obviously, Russia's invasion of Ukraine really, you know, exacerbated energy prices, although they have since recovered. So it has been uh, an eventful year, to say the least. Looking ahead, what do people want to hear? Well, it depends on who you are. I mean, some want to hear a really aggressive hawkish Fed in terms of uh, raising interest rates to tame inflation on the front end. Uh, Some want to hear we're going to do as much as we have to, but not too much. And so there are sort of all sorts of uh, opinions and views about what he should say. Regardless, we're all going to be watching very closely in about 57 minutes to every single word, trying to get a sense of what the path ahead looks like.
Yeah, and along with listening to every word comes the translation of what he's saying. You know, he has made it clear that his decision on interest rate hikes comes uh, with what the data says. And today we got that new piece of inflation data. What's the likelihood he'll, he'll at least refer to that piece, the PCE inflation report I'm talking about, that he'll refer yeah. to it maybe today? I think there's a good chance he'll refer to it. I think what we saw in today's report, we saw uh, in uh, some of the prior uh, inflation reports in terms of the CPI report and the PPI report, which is that energy is having an impact on headline inflation. However, core inflation uh, moderating, at least in this report, but not nearly as much as what the Fed wants to see. They have been very clear about what they're looking for as evidence, clear and compelling evidence of inflation declining. That is core inflation declining month over month. And Allison, we have not seen that yet. Certainly moving in the right direction in terms of uh, moderating those increases, certainly moderating. But we haven't seen declines month over month in terms of core inflation. And they've been very clear that's what they're looking for. So I definitely think, to your point, we'll hear uh, the impact that energy is having on top line inflation and certainly how that impacts sentiment and how that uh, impacts inflation expectations. But I think in terms of are we really making meaningful progress in terms of their goal of getting us back to 2 percent? I don't think we're there yet. All right, Rahel Solomon, thanks so much for your reporting. Now to the latest on the war in Ukraine. The country's largest nuclear plant reconnected to the national power grid, lessening the risk of an imminent nuclear disaster. The plant in Zaporizhia, which is held by Russian forces, had been disconnected from the grid on Thursday. David McKenzie is live for us in Lviv. You know, David, I saw this statement from Ukraine's energy minister saying Russia's forces there are a constant trigger of a possible nuclear disaster. I mean, how volatile of a situation is it? Alison, it's a very volatile situation, but there is this little bit of relief, I think, in terms of the immediate fears of a very bad situation, such as some kind of leak or even a meltdown, uh, because you had that uh, scenario playing out when both sides accusing each other of causing a situation that they removed that from the power source. Now, that is important because you need to constantly cool those fuel rods in reactors, even if they are not operational. There was a moment, uh, it's unclear exactly how long, where one of those reactors was disconnected from the power coming in. According to the authorities in Ukraine and the president, uh, the workers there who've been working under extremely challenging conditions managed to uh, put in those diesel backup systems very quickly that averted the potential disaster they say and now it seems like at least one reactor is reconnected with the ukrainian power grid to allow it uh, far less than it would be before the war but allow it to produce some electricity for the ukrainian grid david what's the progress of uh, the iaea visit I think this is the next thing that everyone's really hoping for because over the last few weeks we've been reporting on this. Every day goes by with some potential calamity, an accusation from one side to the other of shelling on the site, fires being started. You know, we spoke to a worker, an administrative worker at that site who said they are working in hellish conditions. There's shelling going on back and forth across the Dnipro River. Uh, and so what really is needed, say, international actors, is for that IAEA uh, inspectors to get in there. President Zelensky uh, calmed uh, or tried to calm uh, Ukrainians uh, in his address and also apply pressure on the agency. All right, Dave.
I want to assure all Ukrainians we are doing everything to prevent an emergency scenario. But it depends not only on our state. International pressure is needed that will force the occupiers to immediately withdraw from the territory of the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant. The IAEA and other international organizations must act much faster than now, because every minute of the Russian military staying at the nuclear plant is a risk of global radiation disaster. Uh, so the head of the IAEA has said that it could be days, he didn't specify how many days or what exactly needed to be figured out before they get in there. He said that some progress has been made, but uh, it's still a very tricky negotiation with two warring parties to get the team in there to actually ensure that this nuclear power plant is safe. Alison? Okay, David McKenzie, thanks very much. A winter of discontent lies ahead for millions of Britons facing soaring energy bills. The UK energy regulator has just announced the price cap on household energy tariffs will rise by 80 percent. Gas prices on the global markets were already rising post-pandemic, and Russia's war on Ukraine has driven them into the stratosphere. Let's bring in Scott McLean. He joins us now from London. You know, this really means that households, Scott, in the U.S. and the U.K., rather, are going to be paying almost triple the price to heat their homes compared to a year ago. It's pretty wild, Allison. And look, it's obviously not unique to this country. This is certainly a problem right across Europe as gas, as energy prices continue to rise. Now, I should point out that uh, here in the UK, the energy price cap, it's not a maximum that you could possibly pay for gas and, and electricity. And if you go past it, then it's free. That's not the case. It's just a maximum that the companies can charge over and above the actual wholesale cost and their other costs. So it's a cap on the profits that they can actually make. And it's expressed as the maximum that a typical household with typical usage would actually pay. So it comes into effect in October and the energy companies are already warning that, or the energy regulator, I should say, is already warning that in three months when this number is updated, that it's very likely to get even worse than it is right now. So I spent the afternoon with a calculator in my hand trying to get a sense of what this would actually cost the average family in the UK. And what I came up with is pretty striking. So the median household income after tax in the UK amounts to just over $3,000. Uh, the rent on average is more than 900 food more than 350 I think we have this graphic that we can put up now. Uh, and then the list goes on with transportation, TV, phone, internet, water, uh, clothing. And then energy under this new price cap would cost about $350 per month. If you add all that up and subtract it to what you actually make, you're left with only about $900. And Allison, what I did not include in this list is anything fun. Recreation, meals, vacations, going out to a restaurant to eat, uh, drinking, smoking, if you happen to have those vices. Official uh, data suggests that those would cost about the average person, average household, about $400 per month. So there's not a whole heck of a lot left over. If you look at the richest households, they're not going to feel it all that much. But if you look at the poorest households who make about half of that 3000 number uh, that I mentioned there, they're already feeling it even before these energy prices started to spike. And so um, this, uh, their energy bills, if they're typical users, could be about a quarter of their uh, after tax income. It's pretty remarkable. You mentioned some of the reasons that the regulator uh, has given for these rises, that the economy seemed to rebound quicker after COVID than people expected. Obviously, the war in Ukraine has got Russian gas shipments to the continent, to Europe, down 77 percent. 
And the head of the regulator tried to put this into context for people. Listen. Now, when I look at the prices in winter, they're already 15 times what they normally are. Now, if that were to happen in petrol, that would mean it would cost us 400 or 500 pounds just to fill up our car. So the costs of energy are changing dramatically. Now, unfortunately, we do need to reflect that cost, and that's why the price cap is changing today. So four or 500 pounds is about five or 600 US dollars to fill up your car, again, with his analogy. I also want to point out one other thing, Allison, and that is that new research from an energy research company suggests that while Europe is really suffering with the heavy cost of energy, Russia is burning it, flaring it, actually, at one LNG plant that they have near the Finnish border. And this research that's based on satellite heat imaging suggests that they're burning about $10 million every single day, all the while Europe cannot seem to find enough natural gas to keep prices in check. Now, according to the researchers, the reasons for this flaring, they could be relatively benign. They also point out that they could very well be political as well. Yeah, Russia is a... Doing away with all the energy, and Britons right now are reconfiguring, reconfiguring their budgets. I can hear it now. Scott McLean, thanks so much. You bet. In China, a record-breaking heat wave driving up consumption of coal. Severe drought has sharply reduced the output of hydroelectric power, normally its second most important energy source. Christy Lou Stout has the details. The challenge is immense. A record-breaking heat wave has been scorching China since June, drying up riverbeds, threatening crops and livestock, triggering wildfires, and shutting down factories. And it could also jeopardize China's carbon commitments. China is the world's biggest carbon emitter. And earlier this year, Chinese President Xi Jinping pledged to strictly control coal-fired power projects and limit the increase in coal consumption. The goal? to strive to reach peak CO2 emissions by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2060. But while China has also been racing ahead in the acquisition of renewable energy sources like solar and hydropower, it is still beefing up its coal power production to keep up with demand. And the extreme heat has clipped some of the momentum. Across Sichuan province, home to 84 million people, drought has cut its hydropower capacity by half. Some 80 percent of the province's electricity comes from hydropower. To make up the shortfall, Sichuan has been running its largest coal-fired plant nonstop and temporarily closing factories to save power. So will the energy fallout from the heat wave make it harder for China to decarbonize? I think there's good evidence that that's true. And members of the Politburo have actually been advocating this and saying that they have to go back to coal because it's more reliable. So uh, the chances of them uh, doubling down on uh, the supply of uh, coal-fired power stations is going to be increasingly high, I think, in the future. China's top scientists have warned that the country is particularly vulnerable to climate change, with its temperatures rising faster than the global average. According to Yuan Jiaxuang, quote, in the future, the increase in regional average temperatures in China will be significantly higher than the world, unquote. As China feels the devastating effects of climate change, plans for international cooperation to tackle the threat have been upended. In response to U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's controversial trip to Taiwan, China cut off climate talks with the U.S. China represents 27 percent of all global emissions. The United States, 11 percent. We're the two largest carbon emitters. It's vital for the rest of the world that the United States and China 
continue to talk on, on climate change. In the long term, unless we find ways of cooperating internationally, no country on earth, not even the most powerful and most populous country on earth, can solve this problem on their own. Christy Lustout, CNN, Hong Kong. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. The U.S. Justice Department could release the affidavit used to justify the FBI's search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home at any time. The department has until noon Eastern today. The affidavit lays out why investigators believe there was probable cause that crimes had been committed. CNN's senior U.S. Justice correspondent Evan Perez joins us live now. So we are waiting on the release of this affidavit. Once it comes out, what happens then? Well, we uh, we almost never see affidavits like this at this point in an investigation. We uh, obviously until there there are charges, and and we don't know whether that we'll ever get to that point in this investigation. Uh, we don't typically see these. So what we want to see from this is. You know, the, the, the parts of this investigation, all of all of the things that they have been working on that gave them a reason to believe that there was additional classified information at the former president's home in Palm Beach uh, and that caused the FBI to carry out this extraordinary search and seizure just over two weeks ago. Uh, the judge in this case said that he is releasing this uh, because he believes that the government has narrowly uh, tailored its redactions uh, to protect the integrity of this investigation. And he was leaning towards letting the public see as much as possible because of the extraordinary nature uh, of, this, uh, of, this, of this search at the former president's home. But what we're looking for is, again, what are the things that led the FBI to believe that despite the, the, uh, the representations from the former president, there was still additional classified information, even though they've been working on this, uh, the, the National Archives had been trying to retrieve these documents since May of 2021. And certainly after they got these initial boxes earlier this year, they became alarmed that there was highly sensitive uh, classified information being stored in an unsecure manner at uh, this house, his beach house in Palm Beach. All right. CNN's Evan Perez in Washington. Thanks. Thanks. Coming up on First Move, struggling to feed Somalia. A malnutrition crisis has gripped the nation. We'll hear from Mercy Corps about what it's doing to help. How about an extra day off every week on full pay? Yeah, I'll take it. You'll hear how this new deal for workers is going so far. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick. For global investors, the waiting is the hardest part. U.S. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell is set to deliver a closely watched policy address at the bank's Jackson Hole Symposium. That's about uh, less than a half an hour from now. U.S. futures are strengthening over the past few minutes as we wait on Powell's speech, thanks to some market-friendly economic data. The PCE price index, that's the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, that rose at a weaker-than-expected year-over-year rate of 4.6 percent in July. New numbers show consumer spending, that's cooling off a bit, too. The Fed also gets a new read on the U.S. jobs market next week. August consumer inflation numbers, those come out before the next FOMC meeting as well. Let's bring in Jeffrey Kleintop. He is the Managing Director and Chief Global Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. 
So we are seeing that uh, inflation, at least prices, um, they cooled off a bit in July. What does that mean for what the Fed is going to do in September when it hikes interest rates? Could we see a less aggressive stance of maybe a half a percent? Or are you seeing a, a three quarters of a percent move or even maybe a quarter of a percent? It probably makes a half a percent move more likely after a series of 75 basis point rate hikes that preceded it. You know, the markets have been bracing for a message from Powell about the need for more rate hikes. But just as it was true a year ago at Jackson Hole, it's this coming data, the data you just referenced and the data we're going to be getting ahead of that September meeting that probably matters more than the speech itself when it comes to the Fed's future policy moves. A year ago showed that data on inflation and demand was accelerating, but now it's showing the opposite. You mentioned the data this morning on the PCE deflator coming in below zero and and surprising on the downside. We may see this a similar type of thing for the University of Michigan data, which is very important to the Fed later today. Uh, I think that's relatively important. The Fed isn't done hiking, but may offer a little bit of a caveat in that the subject of the Fed's conference is constraints on policy. The Fed can't make more natural gas. It can only limit demand for it. And as you noted with the data, that's already happening. Constraints on policy, that includes the supply chain as well, which is contributing to inflation. You know, I think it's less about, or, or correct me if I'm wrong, it's less about what Jay Powell says and more about his tone. What do you think investors want to kind of glean from that tone today? Well, I, I think they want to get a sense of, of you know, how is, how is the Fed looking at the data that will be coming in? Are, are they very much in the position of saying we're going to lag the data, meaning they're going to wait till they see a lot of months in a row of declining inflation before they uh, begin to declare victory? Or are they going to show a little bit more? Um, uh, they're going to be looking for the tone from Powell and some of the details in there of what what is the Fed looking for? How much a weakness in the labor market are they willing to tolerate or, or accept uh, before they uh, before they begin to halt rate hikes? What are they looking for in terms of overall demand or consumer sales as we go into the important holiday season here? And what are they expecting to see on the inflation front? I think all of that, the tone of the Fed's reaction function to the data is as important to the, as the data itself. Do you think inflation has peaked and um, do you see the Fed overcorrecting because this data obviously is behind us and, um, you know, we don't have a crystal ball. Neither does the Fed, unfortunately. Right. Uh, I, I do think, barring unforeseen developments, which can always occur, we probably have seen the peak in inflation. All prices don't peak at one time. Usually there's a process. Commodity prices tend to peak first, and we've seen that. Oil is down $25. Wheat has come all the way back down, uh, which was a big deal after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we've seen aluminum prices really come down. So a lot of key commodities have come down for a few months now. Goods prices usually come next, and we're starting to see that. We've heard from Walmart, Nike, Macy's, uh, Kohl's, Target, so many retailers that they're overburdened with inventory, and they are cutting prices going into the shopping season. And then come services. Services make up most of inflation. 57% of the CPI are things like housing and healthcare and education. Those prices haven't come down and they're not showing any signs of rolling over anytime soon. So it's a struggle between some of the leading indicators of inflation and the lagging indicators of inflation. So I think we've seen the peak, but the pace at which it falls still very dependent on very stubborn rent and housing prices. Yeah. And with the Fed, no stopping them now with raising rates. Do you think the stock market isn't pricing in just how aggressive the Fed may get? I mean, you look at the S&P 500, it's uh, it's up 15 percent off the June lows. 
It has moved a lot, although in the last couple of weeks we've seen, I, I guess, uh, uh, we're down a little bit this week, down a little bit last week. Right. I think the market is trying to reassess the pace at which this is happening. But look, the market is is affected by global monetary policy. And even though the Fed certainly got some rate hikes ahead of it here, we, you know, there's a lot of trees in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, but we don't want to miss the forest. You know, what we've heard from other central bankers, many of which will be attending Jackson Hole, is that maybe they're at the peak of their rate hikes. The Central Bank of Brazil and the Czech Republic National Bank, not two we talk about very often, but they led the wave of global central banks in hiking rates last year. They've now signaled as of August 3rd, they both said they were done. We also got the Bank of Korea this morning only hiking by 25 basis points after hiking by 50 in July. So we're seeing a slower pace and maybe even the beginning of the end of rate hikes around the world. And that means global monetary policy uh, might be beginning to, not ease yet, but, but really slow down dramatically in terms of its pace of tightening, even if the Fed has a little bit more to go, given how the Fed lagged the rest of the world in hiking rates, might, might still be several weeks away or months away from stopping. But but it is noteworthy since stocks tend to react to global monetary policy, mm -hmm. not just from the Fed. All right. Jeffrey Kleintop, Managing Director and Chief Global Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. Thanks so much for your expertise today. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, Russia's war and climate change are having drastic impacts on the Horn of Africa. I'll be talking with Mercy Corps' CEO about what needs to be done to help save lives. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. This week, the head of the UN said over 700, 720,000 tons of grain and other goods have been shipped out of Ukraine since the Black Sea Initiative was signed in July. That gives at least some hope to vulnerable communities in Africa and the Mideast that rely heavily on Ukrainian and Russian exports. A prime example is Somalia, where a hunger crisis is being deepened by extreme weather and Russia's war. The humanitarian group Mercy Corps said, while the grain deal will ease some shortages, more work needs to be done. Joining me now is Jada Doyen McKenna. She is the CEO of Mercy Corps. Welcome to the show. So thank you for having me. And I'm so grateful you took time out to talk with us. I know you just returned from Somalia just a day or so ago. You visited drought-affected yes. communities there. Talk us through what you saw. What did you learn? Somalia is in its fourth season of no rains. So since early 2021, people in rural communities who depend on livestock and agriculture um, have been left with animals dying because of no rain and no water um, and, and no crops that have been grown. And so they've lacked any economic ability to make an income or to have food. And already to date, over one million Somalis who have lost everything, have left their homes in rural communities and are going to these um, camps on the outskirts of, of major cities. And by the time these, these migrants arrive, they are already suffering from severe malnutrition. They've lost everything. So I've, I've met people who walked up to 14 days um, to get to locations and, and the numbers are just immense. I met in, in a short period of time there, I met two women who lost, whose children died on the way to these camps and had to be buried on the side of the road. And the, the cases of severe malnutrition have just skyrocketed. I visited a hospital and I saw multiple children who were two years old who weighed less than seven kilograms. 
Oh, you this tell such, is a devastating, devastating crisis. I, I was just going to say, you tell such devastating stories. I mean, really heartbreaking here. Uh, the drought crisis is across the entire Horn of Africa region, and the severe hunger, as you say, is affecting tens of millions of people. Explain to us why this is just getting worse and worse. Obviously, climate change is a huge reason. But, and why is this so overlooked by the world? Yeah, the, the climate change, we're going to keep getting these severe droughts and they're going to come closer together and be more severe. Um, and this was already a problem before uh, the war in Ukraine started. Um, but since then, we've seen because the, the Ukraine was a food was a food basket, we've seen prices of basic supplies just skyrocket. So food prices have gone up. Fuel prices in Somalia are up 40 percent. Flower prices are up over 100 percent. So people who are already economically vulnerable and suffering, now it's just much more expensive for them to be able to survive. On top of that, you have the supply chain crises that we were already facing because of COVID. And we're dealing with populations that may have already been depleted by COVID in terms of um, excess capacity or other sources of resilience. So a lot of things are combining to make this a particularly devastating time. Yeah. And and can you tell us how much grain has gotten through um, with the deal, uh, you know, to, to allow to allow exports through to the Black Sea? Are you able to tell if any of that grain has reached Somalia, which you've already made clear is just not enough? But how much has gotten through? It's just not enough. And I, I don't think it's any of it has hit Somalia yet. I think it is expected to land in Africa. But the reality is the grain that is making its way out of Somalia is already much less than the grain that the market would have normally would have normally expected out of the Ukraine uh, because farmers were displaced and had to move things sat in storage for a long time. So we're seeing less supply than the world was already used to from Ukraine. Um, and it's coming and those are still coming through market means. So we are glad to see some of these grains coming to places that need it the most. Um, but it's it's not enough. It won't be enough. And, and it's too late. And the mm. other part of this is that if there if farmers in Ukraine are being disrupted from planting now, we will see a few years of, of decreased uh, grain supply. What has to happen to actually get the world's attention? I, I thank you for bringing attention to this. Um, I, I think there's a fatigue. The people are focused on Ukraine. They're focusing on all kinds of things. Um, but what, one thing I hope that people and governments and other donors will realize is just like COVID and everything else, um, the situation in the world right now does not affect all of us equally. And there are millions of children and very vulnerable people who lived in more difficult circumstances who are suffering even more in a disproportionate amount. The, the, the really tragic part of all of this is that climate change is going to affect Somalia the most, or, and it's affecting the Horn of Africa the most. And Africa as a continent has been the smallest contributor to climate change. Um, and so it, it's not just a human, there's human dignity, but also people have to survive and, and not, not dealing with this gives room for other extremist groups to take over. You know, if governments, if we don't step mm -hmm. in to help, someone else will. And, and, and we need to be cognizant of the long-term impacts of this. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Jada Doyen McKenna uh, with Mercy Corps. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Stay with First Move. We'll have more after this.
California is to ban the sale of new cars with gasoline engines from 2035. State regulators approved the measure Thursday. California's emissions standards have the ability to shape the global market. The big U.S. brands are already on board. GM has said it will only sell EVs by 2035. Ford and Stellantis, the parent of Chrysler, are targeting 50 percent by 2030. Daniel Sperling, who is on the California Air Resources Board, voted for the ban. Speaking ahead of the vote, he told Richard Quest similar moves are coming from outside of the U.S. Europe, of course, is moving ahead very aggressively as well. And they're they're planning on adopting a a very similar mandate for 100 percent by 2035. And they're planning to do that later this calendar year. So So there's, you know. Existing cars, existing cars will be allowed, obviously, to stay on the road. This is not an idea to get rid of the existing cars, but they'll obviously be phased out. And there's the hybridization of the vehicles over time. And were you encouraged by the fact that the car companies didn't fight this? It was very interesting. In fact, they already testified this morning just a couple hours ago, and they said um, we support it. They said we are concerned that we want to see investment in infrastructure. We want to make sure there's incentives for buyers. But they said we're on board and we're going to do it. And that was for the entire industry. So um, I, right. I have to say I was surprised. <laughs> I was surprised. <laughs> we've, had some, we've had some pretty bitter battles in the past and lawsuits and so on. But so, it's not happening this time. So related to that, um, there has been obviously we had the Biden infrastructure plan, which went through with hundreds of billions, nearly uh, trillions. And we had uh, this latest inflation reduction. Is there enough money being put into infrastructure for this change? Um, I think so. It, it, there's going to be need more, but it's getting started. You, you have to remember the first few for until you get to about 40, 50 percent of the market of the sales, you really don't need a lot of public charging. And that's because that those people, they're the people that are more affluent. They, they have single family homes. They charge at home. And so it doesn't really become critical until you get to the point where now you're touching people's second car or you're getting into people that live in apartment buildings, condominiums. Mm-hmm. And we're not there yet. So it's not critical for the next three, four, five years. But after that, it will be critical to get that charging infrastructure in there. Right. And, you know, sometimes those utilities are slow and permitting is slow. So it is something to worry about. For millions of U.S., uh, for millions of us, rather, the drudgery of working from nine to five for five days a week has been the way work must be done. And it's taken a seismic shift like the pandemic, to reveal it doesn't always have to be this way. Thousands of workers are halfway into a six-month study into a four-day working week. The deal is you get the same pay in return for the same productivity. Nearly 10,000 employees from over 180 companies are trying it out, ranging from financial services to a fish and chip shop. New Zealand entrepreneur Andrew Barnes first came up with the idea. The way that we work today isn't fit for purpose. It owes more to the 19th century 
than the 21st. Working four days a week radically changes lives. Working longer isn't about working smarter or harder. We found the four-day week empowered our staff to make decisions, but also gave them a collective ownership of the future of work. Charlotte Lockhart is the founder and managing director of Four Day Week Global, a not-for-profit think tank running the trial. Oh, I can't wait to dig into this. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so three months into this program, what are employees, what are employers telling you about it? Um, well, so interestingly, um, the sort of midway informal survey with the, uh, with the, the team on the UK pilot, which is the, where we're at with the midway, they're all very encouraging signs. Most of them are reporting that their productivity is in the very least the same, but a large number of them are um, reporting increased productivity. And they're all feeling very enthusiastic about, you know, developing the, 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 the program and working out how in, within their organization they can reduce work time. Okay, so how are you measuring this productivity? Well, interestingly, most businesses measure things in some sort of productivity in some sort of way. And so what we, we do with the companies when they come on one of our pilots is that they uh, look at what they're already measuring because they'll have historical data for that. And then what else could they perhaps increase their measurements to? So, um, and we encourage them to ask their staff to help them, um, you know, decide what those things will be. So help help us understand this. If if they're working eighty percent of the week, but they're you're, they're giving you one hundred percent productivity, does this mean they're working really long days during those four days? No. So we have a principle called the hundred eighty hundred rule, where you have being paid a hundred percent for 80% time with 100% productivity. But what that means is that your staff will look at how they use their time and the way that they work collaboratively, possibly the way that they use technology, and and you can add in flexible and remote as far as that sort of thing is concerned as well. And they'll actually find those efficiencies for themselves and for you when they are given the true benefit of uh, being able to have more time off. Okay, there are plenty of critics with this idea. A couple of CEOs on remote working telling you what they're saying. Uh, One of them saying, if you want a job, stay remote all the time. Uh, This is Rich Handler of CEO of the investment banking company, Jefferies. If you want a career, engage with the rest of us in the office. From uh, J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon, he argued that remote work doesn't work for people who want to hustle. He said it doesn't work for culture. It doesn't work for idea generation. So the question I have for you is... Is remote work where career, careers go to die? Uh, look, it, it potentially is in some industries, and we're not necessarily advocating for remote work at all. Um, what we advocate for is engaging with your people to find the way in which work can be reframed to include perhaps flexible and remote, but also reduced. So therefore, what you're looking for are all of those benefits, but still focusing in on those things that we also need, which is the team engagement and the collaboration and and the way that we might all work together. So remote is, is, is a conundrum I think we're all facing. A quick, a quick question about that conundrum. Why do you think it is U.S. employers seem to mostly be pushing back on this idea? 
Oh, look, it's not just US employers, but yes, there are lots of US employers that are doing that. And I think that there is, it, it comes down to the way that we in our heads frame what work looks like. So I often say to business leaders when I'm t- talking about this with them is that we need to remember that we borrow our people from their lives. And when we frame it like that, and, and then we have this whole hustle culture around, you know, we must be always on and we must be always working. But my question to you is, what is work? You know, is it, is it this thing that we grind to every day? Or is, are we going to work on our relationships, work on our health, work on our ability to upskill and, and educate ourselves, uh, work on um, community engagement and doing things, mm-hmm. uh, civic duties? So, so actually, how are we using our time to make ourselves better people, not just somebody else profits? Oh, you don't have to convince me. I'm all for balance. Charlotte Lockhart, founder and managing director of Four Day Week Global. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Stay with First Move. We'll have more after this. With pressures on the global food supply chain, one airline appears to be taking the matter into its own hands. Emirates has opened its own vertical farm. Six years into the making, the facility is producing leafy greens that will be served on the company's flights. Airplane food. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Either way, meals are a crucial part of any long-haul flight. And making sure all ingredients are at hand is a constant challenge for caterers. There will always be concerns somewhere in the world through drought, through floods, uh, through labour shortages, uh, and also through shipping and other delays that can happen that way. To tackle these issues, Emirates Airlines thinks a solution lies in agritech. So welcome to the farm. Uh, We've got a showcase of the produce that we're currently growing in here. Based in Dubai, in the UAE, where almost 90% of the food is imported, they've opened their own vertical farm. Larger than four soccer fields put together and worth 40 million US dollars, the company says it's the largest in the world. Behind me in this room, we've currently got 45,500 plants growing. Um, Across the facility, that's over 1.1 million growing at any one time. From kale to arugula to lettuce, the leaves produced here will be harvested, sent to Emirates Flight Catering and prepared into some of the 200,000 meals that go out of this kitchen every day. The supply chain is such that within 12 to 24 hours of it being harvested, it will be on the plate in front of them. They will taste it in the crunch, they will taste it in the freshness. More than growing fresh local produce, it's about making operations more sustainable and reducing water usage. The room environmental system actually draws about 1,500 litres a day out of the room, which then gets recycled. But when it comes to costs, the airline says there are no major advantages yet. The cost is comparable to imports currently. We believe we can bring further efficiencies Uh, into the efficacy that we currently grow at. It's a first step towards change. What we're doing here today is demonstrate that sustainability can be at the heart of growing 
fresh produce in the Middle East. It signals the development of a new generation of agritech. From a more stable supply chain to sustainable food production. For other businesses, the Emirates Airlines vertical farm could be food for thought. And for passengers, your meal could be playing a part in the future of agriculture. One more reason to eat your greens. Anna Stewart, CNN. Let's take one last look at the markets. U.S. stocks mostly lower in early trading as we wait on Fed Chair Jerome Powell's closely watched policy speech in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It begins just a few minutes from now. Investors are receiving some encouraging new inflation data before the bell. The Fed's preferred measure of inflation easing a bit in July and coming in below expectations. The president of the Kansas City Fed saying today that he's now leaning toward raising rates by only a half a percent at the central bank's policy meeting that happens at the end of next month instead of a more aggressive three quarters of a percent hike. And finally, on first move. That's the princess of pop. (laughs) She is back. Britney Spears has returned with her first single in six years, with a little help from the rocket man himself, Elton John. The duo releasing Hold Me Closer, releasing this on Friday, is kind of a reimagining of Elton John's 1971 hit, Tiny Dancer, one of my favorites. The single is Spears' first since being released from the 13-year conservatorship that controlled every aspect of her life. Ahead of the release, Spears said that she's learning every day is a clean slate to try and be a better person and do what makes me happy. Now, that's a mantra we could all live by. That's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. I hope you have a great weekend. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'll be back next week. See you then. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.